right. Well, welcome uh, to church this morning. We've begun a new series as of last Sunday out of the Gospel of John. And so you can turn there, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're looking at a few kinds of people who simply can't believe in Jesus. I shared with you last week that believing is a major theme in John's gospel. The word occurs 99 times throughout the book. Some of these people couldn't believe because they had proverbial blind spots that were keeping them from seeing him. Some of them had had prejudice in their hearts. Some of them had difficult questions. Uh, Some of them wanted to believe but just couldn't. So we're going to see how Jesus engaged each of them. And in the coming weeks, we're going to talk about distracted people. We're going to talk about hurting and disappointed people. We're going to talk about cowards. We're going to talk about skeptics. We're going to talk about moral failures, just to name a few. And today we're going to talk about those who can't believe because they are sexual captives. Sexual captives. Now I have everybody's attention. By the word captive, I'm not referring to the sex trade. Uh, What I'm talking about is people who are captivated by lusts in their hearts. And so much so that it keeps them from submitting to the lordship of Jesus. Uh, There may also be some here who are kind of held captive by sexual mistakes of their past. They feel too damaged. They feel like they're unworthy of Jesus' love for them, his grace, his salvation. There's at least two times in John's gospel where we encounter the sexual captive, and I'm going to read both of these accounts to you uh, this morning, such that they feel like these folks, that they can no longer come to Jesus. They're too damaged, they think. They're too far gone. And so Jesus deals with them twice in this book. And quickly, we'll look at both stories. I will say that if you're from a more mainline background, if you grew up Lutheran or Catholic or Presbyterian or Methodist, this may be the first time that you've ever heard of a pastor mention sex from the pulpit. However, God created sex, and we ought not shy away from talking about what God has created and what God has blessed within, of course, uh, the context of marriage. Second, if we don't talk about sex, we'll, we'll leave the boundaries up to the world to define, and I don't think that's a good idea. Uh, I don't think we should be moot and say nothing. Uh, I don't think we should treat it in a taboo way. Uh, That has been less than productive in decades past for us to just hush, hush. Um, So uh, third, sex is and, and has always been relevant. Would you agree to our culture in which we live? I mean, it's, it's kind of a big deal. Um, we might put it this way. Lots of people have it, right? It's, it's true. Um, in fact, it's been said there are two primary reasons. Rachel's here from the college setting. There are two primary reasons that people lose their faith, people raised in churches like this one, in college and they are these, number one, they question if God is good because they, they see all this evil around them and they wonder, how could it be that we serve a good God? Look at what happened to him or her. Look at, do you encounter that question from time to time? Uh, the second um, 
is uh, the reason that kids depart the faith is because they desire sexual freedom. So they have this tension inside of them. I want to I have sex, these kids that come out of the church. I want to have sex. All my friends in college are having sex, but I was raised in the church. So what do I do? So what do I do if I feel that tension? What do I do if I want to do this, but when I do this, I feel guilty and ashamed? Well, they're either left with living with the tension or they're left with denying the faith. And so many people uh, deny the faith. If you want to do what conflicts with your beliefs, then many opt to get rid of their beliefs. So how is this for interesting? Um, Huxley, the philosopher that kind of came out of the, he, he coined the term agnostic, um, 75 years ago, said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning. So catch what's happening here. The founder of agnosticism, or at least the one that really coined the word and made it popular, is saying, I had a motivation. I had a motivation to believe what I espoused. And he says, he continues, for myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, liberated from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. There was one admirably simple method of confuting these people and at the same time justifying ourselves in our erotic revolt. We could deny that the world had any meaning whatsoever. So that the, the idea, Aldous Huxley is admitting, the idea of, of one not being sure if there is a God or not and that the world doesn't have meaning came out of a desire to reconcile the tension with I want to have sex and I know that sex outside of the covenant of marriage is wrong. Let's say that there's, we're not sure if there's a God and life has no meaning. We feel better about ourselves. Now we can reconcile how we feel with our behavior. See, um, furthermore, I would hope you would agree that uh, our society is pretty obsessed with sex. Is it just me or you go to like Festival Foods or Walmart or Target and the checkout lines, you see titles like this, right? Um, you, you can't buy a can of beans without reading on the way out of the store, um, 10 ways to drive your man wild. Okay? Big print. Right there by the Snickers bars. Okay? Um, or uh, 30 ways to make your bed shake across the floor. I should have said, um, if you have kids in here, this may not be the best Sunday. <laughs> Maybe take them to uh, the children's department. Um, even magazines that had nothing to do with romance, nothing to do, field and stream. How many of you, when you pick up a field and stream magazine, you want to read about hunt hunting and antlers and flies, right, being tied to catch trout? And you see titles like this, how, how to get your girl in the blind. How to get your girl in the blind. Then there's this shocking success, let's dial it back like 10 years ago, eight, eight, nine years ago, of books like Fifty Shades of Grey. 
Barnes and Noble reported that their foot traffic went through the roof inside of that store when that book was released, which has been called by a number of news outlets and, and liberal ones, mommy porn. Mommy porn. So you have the advent of, of books that are written to really drive this thing. Um, but church family, what, what I want to share with you this morning is that there is absolutely nothing that can destroy your faith and dull your spiritual appetites faster than being captivated by sex. Um, there's, uh, I'll just say again clearly and emphatically that God is the creator. So this is a wonderful invention that we're talking about. This is a wonderful gift to humankind within a certain context. Um, further, God isn't surprised, I don't think, by how much we like it. Because it's his gift. He hopes, why would you give a kid a scorpion, right? Um, you want to give your kid good gifts, right? God clearly thinks that sex is a good uh, gift. Um, but as with all the other gifts from God, can his gifts be abused and misused? Can God's gift of financial affluence be abused and misused? Yes or no? Can God's gift of family be abused and misused? Yes, it can. And can God's gift of sex be abused and misused? Well, of course. Of course it can. So let's look at how Jesus, how Jesus dealt with two people for whom sex had gone terribly wrong. And let's see what he has to say. Um, both of them happen to be women. Allow me to reassure you that the fact that both of them are women is not any kind of statement inherently within itself. Um, these are simply the narratives that we have in the Gospel of John. And in a paternal culture, frankly, that put much of the blame on women... Uh, for sex gone awry, this ought not surprise us, so don't let the gender uh, in the narrative uh, throw you off. Men are just as bad, if not worse, at becoming sexual captives. I'm not sure if that's been proven empirically, um, but I went to college once, myself, and I would say from a narrative or from anecdotal evidence, I would certainly say men, young men are especially, are pretty bad. They're pretty bad in their thoughts. They're pretty bad in their speech. Uh, so with that being said, uh, I want to read the narrative from John 4. And Jesus had to, I'm just going to read this one straight through and then we're going to talk about it. And Jesus had to pass through Samaria. And Jesus had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. What time of day is that? The first hour is 6 a.m. in the morning of the day. This is lunchtime, right? This is noon. So it's 
in a Middle Eastern context, hot outside, right? You don't hang out in the middle of the day at the well. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. I'll tell you what I'll share in a minute is that she was there not in the middle of the day because she was thirsty. She was there in the middle of the day because she did not want to be seen. Because she knew nobody else would be at that well in the middle of that hot day. So there's a woman who comes to draw water, and Jesus says to her, Give me a drink, verse 8. For his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? So clearly there's something between Jews and Samaritans. We'll talk about that in a minute. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So Jesus moves from talking about something physical to talking about something spiritual. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? You can almost hear this woman has a a bit of snark in her tone. A little sarcasm. Are you great? Who do you think you are? Are you are you greater than Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water, this water at this well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. See, again, she's thinking in the physical. She's thinking, she's thinking something biological, some kind of magical water where she's not going to have to go back to the well. And Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, (laughs) I perceive (laughs) that you are a prophet. So, a little context here in this exchange. The Samaritans were a small, hated community by the Jews, by the people of Israel. The animosity stretched back about a thousand years. So, it had been ongoing for many generations. The northern part of Israel had seceded from the southern part of Israel. They'd gone their own way. They'd grown unfaithful to God, and in 722 B.C., God punished them by allowing the northern kingdom to be conquered by the Assyrians. Uh, In those days when you conquered a people, what did you do? You didn't want them repopulating themselves and their culture, their cultural identity, rising up against you in the future, 
the grandchildren uh, to avenge what you did to their parents. So what they was, would do was, was twofold. Number one, uh, they would carry off the majority of people into exile, and there they would make them slaves, and they would make them concubines in particular, the women. Uh, why would they do this? Because, again, they wanted them to lose cultural identity. They wanted the offspring to be born not 100% Jewish, but half Jewish, half pagan. They wanted them to live their lives not sure of who their God was, unfaithful to the God of their forefathers. Um, once uh, they would carry off the majority of people into exile, they, they would make them slaves and, and concubines. They would also send a bunch of people into the conquered land for anybody that was left behind, any remnant, uh, as it were, and they would make sure that they mixed with them sexually. If you remember uh, the movie Braveheart, one of the most disturbing uh, moments in that film, that's one of my favorite movies ever, by the way, with Mel Gibson, uh, there's this law mentioned in the film called Prima Nocta, in which a feudal lord would, would claim sexual rights for uh, to a woman, especially on the night, as disgusting as this is. This was a European thing. It's kind of arguable, the veracity. Did this really happen? But it's said that this happened at one point in history, and a feudal lord or a king could say, I want to sleep with that woman before you do. Husband, newly married individual on her wedding night. And, and they would do this. And so the, the idea was, and they even said this in the film, something to the tune of, if we can't fight them out, we will breed them out. Okay? This is the ideology. So the northern kingdom of Israel did not resist at the time. They were rel relatively powerless. All of this sexual integration, the offspring were known as Samaritans. So what were the children of this mix between God's people and the pagans that had conquered them? They were effectively what we might call, even though it's a pejorative term, half-breeds. Half-Israelite, half-pagan. Uh, around 100 B.C., this renegade uh, guy, this Jew named Manasseh, this rebel, defects to Samaria. He puts up some new places of worship. Remember the people in the southern kingdom, they think they're the pure version of God's people. So they, they say all those people in the northern kingdom identifying with Manasseh, that's a cult up there. They're doing some things a little differently than we did them. So the Samaritans were also considered a cult. So there was this, this sexual condescension. You're a half-breed. You're illegitimate. And then there was this religious condescension. You're off. You're not a part of God's chosen people. So there was as much animosity between the Jews and Samaritans uh, than if you were trying to get to the northern uh, part of Israel, you would actually go all the way around Samaria. People wouldn't even, Jews wouldn't even pass through it. Uh, why? It, it took about six days extra to go around. Why would you do that? More money, more time, more, well, one, they were scared that they would get a vandal, a vandalized, that, that vandals would take them over. A two, um, they would feel defiled. 
they'd feel like we're passing through some kind of perverted pagan place, right? So, so just to give you an idea, this is who this woman is. This is a Samaritan. And notice the detail. She's there at noon. I went to Tunisia in northern Africa on a missions trip. I'll tell you, midday, it was hot. It was hot. Okay? Um, I won't get any into any detail, um, but I'll just tell you, like, you had to put double the deodorant on, right? In, on, in that part of the country. I mean, it was just, you were sweating. You were sweating in places you'd never never dreamt of sweating. It was just tough to, to move around that culture in the, in the middle of the day. But here she is, and she's the outcast of outcasts. She knows very few people will be out at that time of day. She battles the same shame that the woman with the issue of blood battled. Do you remember who, in, in a clandestine way, snuck in like a ninja to touch the hem of Jesus' garment because she didn't want to be seen? out and about publicly because she was shamed. So here's this lady, and uh, her shame is what makes this whole story so shocking, and especially Jesus' statement, give me a drink, because Jews had no interactions with Samaritans. And this particular interaction is interesting because Jesus is offering her something spiritual in the water that he's talking about. And she thinks he's talking about something physical, so she has a, a bit of an edge to her. Are you greater than our than our father Jacob? The irony is that the guy with her is greater. <laughs> Jesus is greater than her father Jacob, though she doesn't know this yet. And finally she says, and I picture her having this like new New Jersey accent when she when she says this, she says, Why are you talking to me? Why are you talking to me? And Jesus tells her about eternal life. And then he says, go call your husband. And this is the moment where, like, if you're watching a Hollywood film, like, da-da-da-da, you know, and she's like, oh, my goodness, what do, I, what do I do? Right? He told me to go get my husband. And she says, I don't have one. And then Jesus accessed the divine part of his nature, his God stuff. And he says, you're right, you've had five of them. And the man you're currently with isn't your husband. He's your boyfriend that you're living with out of wedlock. Um, This is what some may call boom roasted. Okay? She's called out. She's standing there left to defend herself. And just like this woman daily came to, to, to get water, would drink it and then wake up the next morning and thirst again, and has to go back to that well continually to get water, Um, she has gone, Jesus is pointing out of her, back to romance again and again and again to satisfy her soul. But it's not working. Temporarily it leaves her satisfied, but then she wakes up, literally, thirstier. Right? Needing something more. And the woman said, Sir, it seems that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. What is she doing by having these theological, nuanced uh, kind of ideas? I'll tell you what she's doing. She's getting uncomfortable. (laughs) It's what everybody does when they're uncomfortable. They try to divert all of a sudden and have a different kind of conversation. 
So she's uncomfortable. She'd rather talk about theology than she would what's broken on the inside of her. And this is what people do in pastoral counseling. You know, you'll be talking about them, but pastor, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not involved in homosexuality, and I don't deal with, um, you know, I've, I've never had an abortion, and I don't deal with this and that, and they, and they name a few really big issues, what Christianity has defined historically as really big issues, and it's like, well, those are great questions, but that's not the issue at hand, right? What we're here to talk about is is this. So that's the dynamic. And Jesus has called her out on that, which leads to this long conversation that ends with Jesus telling the woman that he wants her to worship God in spirit and in truth. This woman has not lived in truth for a long time. For years, she's lived a lie. She's covered over her shame and hurt with more and more and more sex. Like a bandage like a way of papering over the void that's in her soul. And there's, a, and there's a part of her that had been dead for a very long time, and yet she kept dealing with the pain by finding a new lover. She would deal with, with the hurt by finding a new thrill. And Jesus, in this one conversation, this is remarkable, healed her by giving her the assurance, hey, the heavenly father in heaven is who you've actually craved all along. You've been wanting love. You've been wanting affection. The the love that you looked for first from your earthly father, and you likely didn't receive it there, and then from a boyfriend, and then from a marriage, and then from an affair, and then from a marriage, and then from an affair, and then from a marriage, and so on and so forth. Today I'm going to give you, Jesus says, that love. That affection, not in an erotic way, but in a platonic, beautiful, other-centric fathering kind of way. And he spoke complete acceptance of her. And from here, I just want to jump over to John 8, and we'll read a different story, beginning in verse 3. Are you following me so far? Say yes. All right. Even if you're not, say yes. Verse 3 of chapter 8. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. So she shamed this woman, different woman. She's humiliated. And we're not sure where the guy is. Because in this culture, the guy often got away with it. It It's terrible. But this was the day. Okay? So we're not sure where the guy is. And placing her in the middle, verse 4, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Some theologians even argue that because she wasn't just caught in adultery, she was caught in the act of adultery, that she would have been dragged out partially clothed or naked to this setting. Now, that may be pushing it too far. We don't know for sure. But just know that this was a very embarrassing and humiliating encounter with very religious people. Now, in the law of Moses, we're commanded to stone 
such women. So what do you say, Jesus? This they said to test him that they might have some kind of charge to bring against him. And Jesus' response, and Jesus' response is to stoop down and start scribbling something in the dirt. To this day, we don't know what that was. He could have spelled out idiots, you know, in, in Greek. We, we don't know what Jesus drew. Maybe he drew stick men. We don't know what Jesus drew in the dirt that day. But he starts writing something in the dirt. And then Jesus says, a few verses later, let he who is without sin among you religious people throw the first stone at the woman. So she's shamed, she's humiliated, and one by one, the religious elites to whom Jesus said, let, let who, he who is without sin throw the first stone, they start walking away. They can't bring themselves to do it. Because they know that they've been guilty too. See? And then, when it's just her and Jesus left, man, would I love to be there and see this. There are certain stories that I just want Jesus to roll the tape back when we get to heaven. And just watch them again. And I want to see this moment. And and Jesus stood up and he said to her, Woman, where are they? (laughs) Where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Here's what captivates us about Jesus' response. It's the order of what he said. I want to say that again. What captivates us regarding Jesus' response was the order of what he said to her. Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. We would usually expect the reverse of those in our works-based theology that we often, uh, and we're at fault for this, subscribe to within our own minds. And and we become our inner critics. And, And we say something to this effect. If you go, we say this in our judgment of others, if you go and sin no more, then I won't condemn you. If you go and sin no more. Jesus was telling her to change, not in order to be accepted, but to change because he had already accepted her. See, church religion tells you that change needs to come first and acceptance second. Let me say that again. Religion teaches us that change needs to come first and acceptance will come second if we change. The gospel tells us that acceptance comes first and change comes second. Jesus knew that this woman would never have the ability to break free from her idolatry of sex until she felt that the embrace of God was better than the embrace of any man she'd been with. I want to say that again. Jesus knew 
she would never give up illicit, out of the context of marriage, sex. Unless she discovered that the embrace from Jesus was better than any other embrace she had ever experienced in her entire life. This is very important. Turn to your neighbor and say, this is very important. God's acceptance, God's acceptance of us is what gives us power to be liberated from sin. God's kindness to us, that's why the Bible says his kindness leads us to repentance. His kindness to us, his acceptance of us, is what gives us the power to beat sin. When we understand what Jesus Christ sacrificed on the cross, we are free. Sin becomes less of a big deal. Sin becomes less of a draw. Salvation is a gift that's giving not to deserving people, but undeserving people, and the gift lifts them out of their captivity. This means that when a high school boy or girl loses his or her virginity, we don't just tell them about venereal diseases and how they're at risk. This means that we just don't tell them of the shamefulness of their acts. This means that we don't tell them that they're going to mess up only their future marriage. This means we tell them that there's a God in heaven who cares for him or her so much that he left heaven to come to earth and die for him or her, to wash him or her in his blood, to make him or her pure and holy in his sight. The only way that a teenager or an adult will break the stronghold of idolatry as it pertains to sex, the one that leads to bad decision-making, is by seeing a heavenly father whose attention is better than what any girl or guy could give him or her. The same is true of pornography. Yes, we should tell people it's damaging. Yes, we should tell people it causes unusual and, quite frankly, weird expectations in the marriage bed. Yes, we should tell people it causes comparison issues. Yes, we should tell people it raises our standards of beauty to qualities relegated to airbrushed beauty queens. Um, but according to 1 Corinthians eleven seven, what we should also say to people is, Men, and I'll say this to men in particular because they're typically the ones, not always, that struggle with pornography. You're the glory of God. That's what you're called in the scriptures. You're the glory, you're the radiance of God. You're not an animal. You're not a pervert. You're the glory 
of God. You are not an addict. You're the glory of God. You're not a victim. You're the glory of God. You're not a fool. You're the glory of God. Jesus purchased you with his blood. And as such, he's given you his acceptance. And and it's a gift regardless of what you do with pornography. Jesus has liberated you from the power of sin. Not by dangling some reward or carrot in front of you that says, if you don't, you can win my affection. But by saying, if you struggle with this battle for the rest of your life, I love you. Anyway. And that truth is is what makes the sin lose its power. Jesus loves me anyway. Why would I mess with that trivial stuff? I don't mean trivial in the sense of the damage they can cause. That's vast. I mean, I have seen people recover from sexual addiction and it becomes trivial. It's just not something I would want to shake a stick at. And Jesus would become these women's shame himself. You realize Jesus would be displayed naked. Jesus would be exposed publicly. So from these uh, stories, I want to give you just three quick ideas. Okay, and then I'm going to pray for you. Number one, sex is not just a physical thing. This is what the pagan world teaches. If you're hungry, eat. If you're tired, sleep. If you lust, have sex. It's just a physical thing. The body needs it. You just need to have it. We're animals. Just do it. The Bible takes a much higher, much more exalted view of sex. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. The Bible presents sex as a covenant relationship where physical oneness is accompanied to emotional oneness and spiritual oneness. So having sex outside tears that oneness apart. It it breaks down the integrity of a relationship. It it tears apart the integration, integrity, integration of body, soul, spirit. It literally disintegrates you. There's a book called Hooked, uh, a scientific study written by neurologists. It's it's a secular book. It was not written by Christians. And it empirically proves that multiple sex partners rewires your brain in a way that makes genuine, lasting, selfish, uh, selfish, selfless relationships far more difficult. You can't have them any longer without a lot of work. 
They say the individual who goes from sex partner to sex partner is causing his or her brain to mold in such a way that it eventually accepts the pattern as normal. The pattern of changing sexual partners, therefore, seems to damage their ability to bond in a committed relationship. The kind of attachment damage that occurs after repeated sexual encounters is, in many respects, more promiscuous or rather pernicious than pregnancy more pernicious than STDs because it typically goes unperceived by affected individuals while causing ongoing difficulties in establishing a lifelong and satisfying relationship. What are they saying? They're saying you can take a pregnancy test and know that you're pregnant. If that's an unwanted consequence, at least you're aware of it. You can know that you have an STD. You won't know necessarily, you won't be conscious of the fact that you're addicted to having sex with multiple people. Number two, sex is driven by soul thirst. Our craving from, or rather for sex, is often driven by a vacuum. A hole in our soul that's left without God. That is what you see with this woman at the well. Josh McDowell said, sex is not the answer. Sex is really an expression of the question. The state of our soul is thirsty. We thirst for love. We look for it first in our parents. And if we don't get it from them, we develop all kinds of dysfunctions. We thirst for purpose to know that we are important and matter to somebody. We thirst for peace. We look for the answers to all these things in romance and sex. But sex can't provide it. The only one who can give us perfect love is God. Number three, the gospel liberates the sexual captive. Jeremiah 2.13, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What is Jeremiah saying? He's telling them that they have drunk from wells that do not, will not, cannot satisfy Church family, sex is a well that will not satisfy. It will for a moment, but it'll leave you thirstier. Have you ever heard that people who are lost at sea on, let's just say, a raft, that they become insatiated, they're dying for something to drink? What becomes really appealing in that moment? Seawater, right? The water that's all around them. But what is the very one thing you never want to do if you're lost at sea? Drink seawater, right? Because it only makes you more thirsty and can make you sick in the process. That is what sex is. If you go home and tell your friend, this is what I learned in church today, sex is like seawater. They probably won't quite get that. But you get the idea, I hope. It leaves you wanting. It's not ultimately fulfilling. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we might realize that it's not that our desire for sex is too strong. You wired us this way. It's that our desire for you is too lacking. 
It's the, that the desire for you is too weak. It's that we haven't discovered your kindness. It's that we haven't embraced your graciousness. Lord, I pray that we would marvel at these stories of these women being told that they're accepted and loved. Not because they were attractive, but because they were unworthy and you chose to fill the gap by your death on the cross. Lord, I pray that we would be motivated to serve you, that your kindness would lead us to repentance, that we would change. In Jesus' name, amen.